0: Um, guilt is a terrible long-term motivator. Um, I bet you can't think of one thing right now that you are consistently doing throughout your life, Mm. your whole life, because someone made you feel guilty about it at some point.
1: Sometimes you do the
0: opposite. Exactly. Out of passive aggressiveness. And then (laughs) you just get into this, (laughs) then that's a downward spiral. That's not healthy, right? It's not who we, it doesn't bring us joy. Um. Yeah. So, so guilt doesn't work. We know that. Um, so I don't use it and I don't like when people use it on me. And in fact, I don't, uh, when people try to use it on me, I don't accept it. I don't accept guilt.
1: This is Epic Ordinary Lives Podcast. Welcome to episode 39 of Epic Ordinary Lives, the podcast that believes in the power of story. Because when we share the stories of our lives and we reflect on all that we've gone through, and usually when we reflect on some of those key moments, origin stories, it gives us the room to truly consider both the valleys and the deserts of our our lives and our stories, but also the great triumphs. And in sharing these stories, we offer them to the world so that others may learn from them. And in the context of this podcast, we can learn from the lessons of other people's epic ordinary lives. That is the goal of this podcast, to help folks truly understand just how epic their own ordinary lives are. And this week, we rejoin Emily Stutzman. This is part two, where part one featured me talking with Emily Stutzman on her own personal journey with entering the world of sustainability. She is the director of undergraduate programs at the Institute for Sustainable Practice at Lipscomb University. She has her MS in Rural Sociology and a PhD in Forestry from Auburn University. And her path and journey has led her to teaching sustainability. And much of the first episode last week was centered around us talking about that journey. How she went from a 15-year-old that was in Future Farmers of America through all types of adventures and experiences that has led her to where she is today as someone that is both conducting research in the world of sustainability, but also teaching this topic. And that's where this second part comes in. Whereas the first episode was very much about her specific life journey this second episode is more about how each of us can live a more sustainable life, an environmentally sustainable existence. And what I love about part 2 is that you will leave this with so much practicality, so much so many practices and and ways of looking at the world and how <laughs> how we all have to contend with the temptation to buy things to acquire more things. And she has these great ways of looking at these these temptations and navigating them. We talk about all manner of things here, from the concept of being anti-fragile to how your own personal path and choices can act as a mirror for other people and how sometimes that can make you and your decisions, something that uh, challenges other people. We end this episode with lots of different practices that you can take part in right now if you're interested in living in a more sustainable manner. And I left this conversation excited, excited to truly love the things that I already have. And I did not leave this conversation with a feeling of lack. Or feeling like I was going to need to uh, deny myself anything. So I hope you experience that as well when you listen to this. A huge part of Epic Ordinary Lives is finding how all of these different walks of life tie to the whole of life. How we can learn from someone in one field and someone from an entirely different field... And how each person's story can contribute to our understanding of the whole of life. And I hope that you experience that in this episode. I will also say that I was deeply impressed with Emily's vulnerability. In this episode, she's very specific about how some challenges of her life have bolstered her ability to lean into what she truly believes in. One more thing, Emily and I, when we got done listening to the episode, she caught that we actually uh, misstated the name of the, uh, there was an author that we spoke of when we're talking about anti-fragile, and it's it's Jonathan Haidt. Uh, I I state his name is Nicholas Haidt. It's Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. That is, in this interview when we're talking about the notion of being anti-fragile just wanted to correct that so without further ado please enjoy this part two conversation of emily stutzman's epic ordinary life i think it would be good sort of maybe to take a step back or to zoom out and and just define you've defined you've defined this linear uh, system that ends in a dead end. And, and maybe we should emphasize the dead part of that because it's it's a huge problem. But if we could just define s- sustainability and maybe you already yeah. have been doing that or, or sustainable living, just how would you define those terms?
0: Yes. Yeah, so sustainability. Is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future people to meet their own needs. So people are at the center of sustainability. Sustainability is about people living well, but not just now. <laughs> it's about people living now and into the uh, the future that we can imagine and then past that to the future that we can't imagine. So we, since we don't know what the... Uh, what the needs of future generations of people on the planet might be, the way that someone 500 years ago uh, would have had a hard time imagining that, uh, you know, for example, the role that cell phones play in our lives today, um, and how many, uh, how many needs those meet. That, that is an inherently conservative um, perspective to take to conserve now to, to forego options now in order to preserve options for future generations mm. of people. So that's the, uh, that's the most common definition of sustainable development. Uh, it was it came out in 1987 as part of the UN um, uh, Brundtland Commission report. So that's the definition but what that what that practically looks like is considering social economic and um environmental aspects of everything we do and when we talk about social we're both talking about all people and uh you know that that macro global view certainly as well as uh human well-being so what does it at the individual level? What does it look like to live well? And that might be different for different people based on um, circumstances, location, uh, ability, life stage, etc. So, human well-being is absolutely tied up in uh, in sustainability, and it's making decisions that consider all of those all those facets and consider the long-term.
1: So I I think when folks, depending on where you sit in your life right now, in relation to this issue, uh, I think that there can often be, and this is something that you and I've talked about recently, but you can look at something like the problem uh, that we're in, that maybe the choices that we're making, not maybe, the choices that we're making are not sustainable and they lead to this dead end that we've been talking about. They lead to this uh, closet that is not just a closet filled with it's a, it's a world filled with, and all the negative implications of those outcomes and decisions. And so it can be quickly become, I I think overwhelming depending on of course, where you sit, where you are right now. I'll say for myself as I listen and, and and talk with you about this, I immediately think about my very unfortunate uh, outdoor t shirt addiction. I, my one of my like consumerist problems is that I love like I mean basically I love t shirts that depict an outdoor setting because it, it embodies for me this this I, I too love nature. And and so hilariously to honor my love of nature I buy a t-shirt that was probably produced in China and you know and and, and so I, I say all of that just to say I'm not speaking from uh, up on the mountain looking down on anyone like you know Black Friday I, I I bought three t-shirts that depicted Asheville North Carolina and and so as we look at this big problem and we want to let's say we're inspired by what you're saying And we want to make changes in our own lives, but we go, "Uh, it feels like I need to eat my broccoli and I have not, I've been eating nachos metaphorically.
0: Yeah. So that's one of the misconceptions that I love to help people address is that what we've been sold in terms of, uh, if you care about the environment, right. That look that caring about the environment in a life of caring about the environment, uh, translates to a life of less comfort and a life of less pleasure and uh, uh, that you're that you're giving things up in order to um, in order to care about the environment but but really what's so much fun about sustainability to me especially to uh, work with young people about is that Sustainability is really about creating the life that we want. Sustainability is about creating the world that we want to live in and the lives that we want for ourselves and seeing yourself as a, as a agent of certainly the the most, the biggest realm that you have to influence the world is to influence yourself. Um, then that can ripple out to the people that you have Mm -hmm. relationships with. Um, Directly, and then you know, ripples from there to indirectly. Uh, but the reality is, is that nobody on the planet today creates the, the options that we have, and people make choices based on their options. You didn't create your options, um, but you can make informed choices based on those options. So
1: it, I'm sorry, the the it broke up for a second. I think that was a pivotal moment. Nobody creates their options. Can you restate that?
0: Yeah, so people make choices based on the options that they have. Mm. And when people have better options, they make better choices. And nobody creates by themselves all of their options. People can create some of their options, but many of the options that we have as individuals were created or that we, you know, that we inherit effectively from our, um, you know, from our ancestors, from our context, from um, certainly the place that we um, we find ourselves, the time that we find ourselves in. So it's so it's more a question of how do you work with what you can influence, and what's so much fun about, uh, especially teaching this particular course is exposing students to things that they didn't know that they could do but that they can learn how to do so that could look like for your example um if i had you in class i'd be really especially excited for the mending and embroidery lab and i would teach you and we watch youtube videos and i would uh I'd, you know, I'd ask you to bring in one of your, uh, one of your outdoor t-shirts that has a problem, has a stain or a rip or a, um, a seam coming out and we would fix it and we would make it, um, so that like first goal, you being able to get to use your favorite t-shirt, something that you like, That you now that you know the the resources have already gone into making it right. The cotton's already been grown, the pesticides already been applied, the water, the you know the labor, the shipping, all that's already in this t-shirt. But now it has a rip. So how do we? uh, How do how are you empowered to fix that? Um, Did you I don't know? Did you grow up mending? Did you learn those kind of things as a kid or as a, a young person? Did your grandma teach you how to mend stuff?
1: I mean, you know, my, my, my mom has some of these skills, but I do not have these skills. So yeah. I don't know. I think she honestly developed more of these later. Uh, and, and so no, but it's funny that you mentioned this example because my favorite smart wool, I mean, it's, it's a really nice high quality, uh, long sleeve base layer that I've had for like eight years and it has a rip, uh, on the, so, so no, I do, I do not currently have that skill, which is why I want to take this class.
0: Don't throw it away. Don't give it to Goodwill. We can fix it. So I'd be excited to, uh, you know, to teach you how to mend that. And then I'd also, if there's something, uh, that you want to embellish, I'd like to teach you how to um, how to embroider and how to like add cool designs or um, like how to take what you love about, for example, um, you know, you, it sounds like Asheville is a place that's oh, yeah. special to you. Mm-hmm. So what's something that you would want to put on a shirt that means Asheville?
1: Yeah. I mean, what comes to mind is of course there's the, the blue Ridge, which is just, depending on where you are, you can see at all times. It's that you know, you're in this bowl of, of beauty. So maybe, I don't know the blue, I don't know how I would do that, but that's. But yeah, we could work po- that
0: out and you are capable. You have opposable thumbs. You have like, like and the supplies are <laughs> accessible like i can teach you how to do that and you could but you could also learn that from youtube it's not about me having the skills though right. no, there is something really special about people learning to do things together and the passing of skills from one human to another that is intrinsic to our humanness we are creative we make we change the world around us we make things different um, to achieve, like to achieve our own goals. And, um, and that's a good thing, right? That is inherently human. And that extends to art, but, uh, but this, you know, this idea of like art being just something art and craft being just something for really special people who are amazing woodworkers or furniture makers or, um, sewists or whatever is, is not true that that really that everybody can do the way that we can all learn how to cook basic food to meet our own need. Like not everybody's going to be a world changing chef.
1: Julia Childs, right?
0: Not everybody's going to be. Yeah. But, but that's what she did, right? Like she (laughs) made French cooking accessible to the average person at their house with their, uh, you know, what they could get at the grocery store in, you know, Cleveland, we can all like, and so that's part of what I love uh, doing in this class is helping students take ownership of their stuff, right? There is a different level of ownership when you know that you can change it. You didn't just buy this thing that exists in a static state for you to use. You can You can make it what you want want it to be, and when it breaks, you don't have to replace it. You can fix it.
1: It's so empowering, and and there is still, um, it seems to me, a barrier you have to get over to really hold that uh, awareness. I'll give you a short little example. With the pandemic uh, and all that that kind of required of being a lot more at home, and I mean, not being a lot more at home, being completely at home, for my wife and I, thankfully, it was easy for us to do that. Our jobs allowed us to work remotely. And uh, I we decided collectively that we wanted to finally do a raised garden bed. Yeah. But there was a, for my personality, I, I'm the type of person that I, I like to be very impromptu. I like to leap in and kind of figure it out. But these things require, <laughs> kind of like mending a shirt, it does require research. It requires uh, more rote practice, it requires a a. Uh, I, I like to think of it as like a desert, a little bit, because you're going from this being an intimidating thing to it not, and it being something that you have now made a part of yourself. And I had to watch, you know, I mean, some people, this is not an issue. Some people love to research, but it was hard for me. But when we got the pieces of would cut down to the appropriate sizes. And I had all the different blocks needed to secure it. That afternoon spent figuring out how to put this thing together, laying in the yard with the sun on my face. It was one of my favorite days of 2020. And then when it was done, the sense of accomplishment of having tangibly modified, as you just said, like changed these materials into something that can be generative they can, you know, right now I'm looking out there and I'm seeing spinach through this window. Yeah. But d- do you have advice as a teacher of these paths for getting over that, uh, like, trepidation about, you know, or, or just that challenge of learning these things?
0: Okay, sure. So one aspect, you don't have to be great at everything. Not everybody has to do everything. In fact, no one can do everything. Mm. So that's that my goal with this class is for every student to have one amazing lab day, Mm. one day out of the 16, right? Where they go, wow, I am capable. I did something that I did not know that I could do. So not everybody has to do all of them. And there will be some days that don't that don't go that well, you know, there, there were, you know, whether that's, it is different for everybody, right. Whether it's the cooking ones or the, um, the, uh, the sewing and mending ones or the, um, repurposing things, you know, whatever it is, some people, not everybody has to do everything or can do everything, but that, um, I, it's absolutely a muscle that gets stronger with practice so humans are anti-fragile meaning that um, there's some types of uh, our brains are actually anti-fragile there's some types of systems that when pushed break and those are fragile systems humans are anti-fragile which means that the more we are exposed to and the more we put ourselves in situations to stretch and grow and try new things, the more easy they become. So what that looks like in our brains is the building of neural pathways, as well as the building of memory. So we can remember, you know, you can remember now for the rest of your life, Erin, you can remember that feeling of gosh, I don't know what I'm doing with this garden. There are lots of people saying it to do it different ways. Um, exactly. And you can, but you but you pushed through that and you had that experience of laying in your grass, building those raised beds. And now you have the experience of eating that spinach that you grew. And so when, next time you tried something new, you have those memories to draw from to say, yeah, this felt like, that stage in the past
1: I've been here before I've gotten through this
0: and I want that I want what I'm getting to you can imagine in the future the feeling of eating the spin. you know the equivalent of eating that spinach because you know how satisfying that is
1: yeah it's like the uh, uncomfortable feeling doesn't go away but you know what's on the other side of that uncomfortable feeling
0: yes So it takes practice and it, uh, and just reminding yourself, like my, I am anti-fragile, like the more, the way that my muscular system is also anti-fragile, where the only way to get bigger muscles is to use the ones you have and to stretch them. In fact, to even like rip them a little bit Um, and then they're, and then they'll be sore and that's not the best, you know, that's not the fun part, but that you'll live and then you can go on to do cool things with those muscles that you now Mm. have.
1: Yeah. And the soreness is for some folks, it's the badge of the experience itself. Just kind of like the overcoming of the raised bed, the raised bed jitters that I had going into that project. By the way, I I was looking down because I was looking up the author's name because I've heard of the book. I believe you're referring to anti-fragile things that gain from disorder yeah. by Nicholas uh, Taleb uh, is is that what you were referring that
0: to? that wasn't the guy that I was thinking uh look no. up one called um the a- the age of outrage maybe
1: okay that is well there's a bunch of them is it Nicholas hate
0: yes yep
1: okay I just I, I want- think
0: it's pronounced height
1: thank you Nicholas
0: height. Yeah. Yeah. So Nicholas Haidt taught me this concept of anti-fragile, that our brains are anti-fragile and that we are really doing ourselves and certainly our children a disservice by protecting them from opportunities to stretch and grow because that's the only way um, to develop a sense of balance is to uh, to fall down sometimes.
1: you know, what do they say if the, you know, when, when folks are getting older, some of the best things to, uh, avoid some of the problems with dementia are to learn new things, to have to you know generate new information, to learn a new language, they say, or take up, you know, paddle boarding or something. It, but, but it sounds like that's very much what you're, you're talking about. Well, I don't want to, I don't want I, I to vacate, um. I want to come back to the fact that you were really speaking not from a place of guilt about this stuff. Like you are very clear in this conversation about the problems with this way of living, me buying four Patagonia t-shirts every, you know, whatever. It, there's that that's not a sustainable thing, but at the same time there's a there's a very joyful lighthearted tone that you bring to the practice of becoming more sustainable in your way of living. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like you're not, you're not throwing guilt. I'm not like, I'm feeling better right now.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, I think when, uh, that's how I preface, if I'm ever speaking to a new group, so I'll just say it here. But a lot of times when I get in front of an audience and they introduce me, uh, what people are expecting me to say is, what they're doing wrong and how they can fix it, what they're not doing, um, how to be, how to, how to do stuff better and, uh, and probably some guilt on why what they're doing wrong is, um, you know, killing sea turtles or whatever. Um, and that's not, that's, that is, that's not who I am. Um, and guilt is a terrible short-term, I mean, guilt is a terrible long-term motivator anyway. Guilt is a okay short-term motivator. Um, guilt is a terrible long-term motivator. Um, I bet you can't think of one thing right now that you are consistently doing throughout your life, um, mm. your whole life, because someone made you feel guilty about it at some point.
1: Sometimes you do the opposite.
0: Exactly. Out of passive aggressiveness. And then (laughs) you just get into this, (laughs) then that's a downward spiral. That's not healthy, right? It's not who we, it doesn't bring us joy. Um, yeah. So, so guilt doesn't work. We know that. Um, so I don't use it and I don't like when people use it on me. And in fact, I don't, uh, when people try to use it on me, I don't accept it. I don't accept guilt. Um, because, and it goes back to the options, right? Like I didn't create the options. I didn't ask for this set of options. Um, I can do with what I with this set of options what I can. Um, but also recognizing that it's not on, it cannot be on any individual to solve the solve any problem as complex and multifaceted as, as um, environmental problems, right?
1: Uh, hang on a second though that was a profound statement you just said I, I if someone tries I, I, I want to make sure I mean maybe you rephrase it for me, but you said if, if someone, someone tries to
0: put guilt on me
1: I don't accept like how did you put that?
0: I don't accept it I don't I, I just
1: like you keep you, thank you for this gift. Uh, you our, I, I'm good. You can keep this. Like, that's the imagery that I'm seeing in my mind. Like someone's here, let me offer you this parcel of guilt. No, thank you. No, that, that alone. I know we're talking about a big environmental uh, component, but that is a profound thing for all of life.
0: It is. You get to accept what people are giving you or not,
1: or not <laughs> did now with that, uh, action that act or that lack of action of receiving what that person is trying to offer is that innate
0: in you no holy cow no
1: (laughs) so you had to develop that over how, how did you develop that
0: oh well um i got divorced and i knew from having watched other people get divorced or you know watching movies or whatever I knew what I was going to start hearing I knew what I was going to start getting and I did that I made that decision and series of decisions with a deep sense of internal validation with a deep sense that what i was doing was exactly what i needed to do and nobody else and, and everybody was going to have their opinions and everybody was and there were going to be people who tried to to put guilt on me um and i had a choice of if i wanted to spend the rest of my life hanging my head for that mm. and receiving that guilt um and i'd watched people do that um But that's that I didn't accept it. I didn't accept that guilt. And I could just say in my head and heart and know I did exactly what I needed to do. I made the choices I needed to make for myself. Um, And then I realized (laughs) like 90% of, well, first off, like people responded really differently to me saying that I was getting a divorce. And when I said that phrase, I'm getting a divorce, it was like I held up a mirror to that other person and everything they said to me in response was reflecting them. Wow. It was like 99% about them. And the responses were incredibly different. And I didn't want, <laughs> I didn't want all of the information that I was hearing from them or even if they didn't even know, you know, when I would say I'm getting a divorce, there were people who responded to me in such a way that indicated that they were in abusive relationships mm-hmm. that I didn't want to know that, right? Like I, I, I can't do anything about that. Like right. that was, that was their. Um, their chance, you know, their circumstances. So, um, so yeah, so I learned then that, and and I've been working on internal validation since.
1: Well, how did you, there's two parts to that because there's the part of what happens after you have made a decision that is in core alignment with whatever you want to put. Yeah. God, the universe, your inner voice. There's a lot of ways that people say this. So there's the part of what happens after you have internalized that. And then what you offer to the world, And it sounds like the way that you offered that information is in some ways really important to the way that it was received. But I want to know, how did you get to the place? And I, I say this because people listening, I mean, life is hard. Yeah. That's in- incredibly vulnerable and appreciative that you share this example because other people just as you said are are reflecting back to you their own challenges. How did you get to the place where you could in your guts, in your stomach, in your heart go, this is really hard, but this is a decision that is the right decision? Like was it was it getting quiet? Was it uh, d- different people get to that place in different ways. How did you get to that place of knowing?
0: Yeah. I was in counseling for several years leading up to that decision, um, which was, you know, really important. And I can vividly remember different things that counselors said along the way that helped me arrive at that. that trust in my internal validation. I also read a lot of books. um, And I would read books and say like, is that what I'm feeling or is it something else? And so reading books really helped give me a vocabulary because when you can name something or describe it with words, it has a whole lot more, it's, I mean, it's, 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 a bit paradoxical because it both gives it more power gives you more power to be able to name and describe and have a term. Um, it gives you more power as well as, uh, takes away power from what's happening. Mm. Now that you can, now that you can, now that I can say, this is, this is the term. For what I'm experiencing and feeling, I'm feeling blank. I had more power, and the feeling had less power. Yeah. Also, seeing myself as separate from my circumstances was a big part of that, too. Like, I am a person. And I'm in this set of circumstances and I can be a person and change those true circumstances. Um, the book pedagogy of the oppressed by Paolo Freire. Was it a big one for me? Yeah. What, do you, what is that? What does it's, that bring up for you?
1: Well, it's, it's hugely pivotal, not only to be able to name, but to first know what it is that you're actually experiencing. And I think that that for, for an age, and I think this very much correlates what we're, with what we're talking about on a global scale of being able to actually see how the interdependent relationship between people and communities. And I mean, what you just said, you are... A piece of a puzzle of of a big puzzle, but you are still a piece. You are still a sovereign in in, in ultimate ways, independent element of this universe, separate from your circumstances. And I think th- what you just said—it's you know you really what you're talking about. It, it, the way I hear it is, it, it's a sorting process. What is mine? What is yours? What are the actual? Uh, chains in this cycle of my own life which again I'm seeing it very much in correlation with what we've been talking about on a global level
0: yes I do too and what kinds of impacts do I want to have and my choices will create ripples right the things that I do matter they're not the only, the, <laughs> I guess what I mean is the things that I do matter, just like the things that every other person in the, on the planet does matter. I'm not special in that. That's right. What everyone does matters. And I am one person. So I matter what I do matters too. Um, and i ima- you know, imagining those, those positive ripples, right? So um, when you going back to your t-shirt enjoyment which I'm going to say is like an enjoyment like you're allowed to enjoy t-shirts is it weird that I have to even give someone permission to enjoy t-shirts
1: <laughs> well no well I don't think it's weird I mean I think I think looking at this problem is like pulling a veil back in some ways and going, Oh, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying right now. My actions matter. My black Friday purchase is maybe a drop in the bucket, but it's a whole lot of drops in the wrong bucket that, so I do have power. So the first initial thing is like, Oh, like I already bought those t-shirts, but then, so yeah, no, I don't think it's bad at all that you first acknowledge the, the good part of that love.
0: But also the fact that you can buy the t-shirts that you want to buy, right? So where are the t-shirts that, so first off, like only buy the stuff you really like. If we all did that, we would buy a whole lot less stuff. That's right. So if we only, if we just did that, which like, that's not restrictive, in fact that is empowering that is life giving to only buy the stuff that you like hmm. so only buy the stuff that you really like and only buy the t-shirts that you really like and then when you're also buying you know i i do think it matters to consider uh to consider sources and you know what are what are brands doing in that t-shirt materials economy um, and there are, there are t-shirts that have real positive impacts on people's lives. And there are t-shirts that have really detrimental impacts on people's lives. And there are a lot of t-shirts that we have that, and that we receive, um, that we don't even like. So going back to that, like accepting or not accepting thing, gosh, if we just didn't even take all the stuff that people try to give us. I mean, think about your t-shirt collection right now. How many of those did someone foist upon you?
1: Yeah. I mean, the classic thing is you go to the festival and you go look around booths and you, yeah. I mean, you just collect a myriad of things that you're like, it's free. Therefore it is, I, I it's mine. It's like lord of the rings or something it, you know it, even though i didn't wake up that morning and say you know i want a t-shirt that bears the picture of a you know a chicken leaping off of a i'm making this up as i go but i i didn't i would never have sat down and chosen this for my life but because it's available and free and they're handing it to me my dopamine centers or whatever are zing 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 like
0: yeah so how do you retrain your brain Right. So what's, what's another set of thoughts? And that's another amazing capability that we have over most other species is that we can change our thoughts. So what's another set of thoughts? Here's one, for example, that I like to use. So uh, a lot of people get that same dopamine thing about getting a really good deal. Right. So it's only $5. And so what I've started doing is when I hear myself in my brain say that it's only $5, I repeat it again, but I add on the phrase and the company still makes money. So I'm not winning, right? <laughs> so, so it feels like I'm getting something, right? Like I'm somehow winning when I, um, you know, when I get this pair of shorts for only $10 or this, you know, and the company still makes money
1: yeah because that you're right the psychology of the deal is like for this limited window i'm beating vegas like on you yeah know. wow
0: so so that's another one that's another good one to uh to use is that this this limited window right like this this deal is only available now there is very few things that you can buy that you can't buy again later.
1: Yeah. Do you have any other little uh, practices that that, that, like, to me, I don't know that I'll ever forget that now. Yeah. Yes. It's 20% off Mm -hmm. and they are winning still. Like they want me to, they're still making money.
0: And you have less money. And
1: that's the other part of it.
0: (laughs) Uh, So here's a good one. There is a fantastic, so, so much of what we buy is how it's presented or what we want to buy because it looks so good. Wait, um, man, I have a lot of these. So, so one of them is uh, when you're in Target or when you're in a, you know, in a store, look at how things are placed and just learn some like really basic product placement stuff. So like the stuff on the end caps, what's that about? The t- clearance tags, mm-hmm. look, they're using the color red to trigger my, like, uh, focus and intensity on this item. And that, like, they're playing me. Like,
1: Like a bullseye.
0: Yeah, exactly. So they are consciously choosing a color to make my brain respond a certain way. Ha, I have a prefrontal cortex that can override that plan. That's a fun one. Um, Another one is looking at advertising and good, just good media literacy about advertising. Um, Alcohol commercials are great to like, so like so clear to analyze because they almost always show people having a lot of fun with friends. The message being, if you buy this alcohol and drink it with, uh, and then you'll have great friends and you'll all be laughing and, you know, active and adorable and, you know, wearing stylish clothes and things like that. When, when you can, you can override that, right. You can tell, you can remind yourself, no, actually what are the reasons to like, why, why does someone want to be a good friend? What makes someone a good friend? It's not actually what we're drinking together. It's these other things. (laughs) Um,
1: Disa on the rocks is not the uh, the lead domino of a great friendship.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> no, that's so good. I mean, because like I'm looking at, you know, these, these, uh, just to go to this silly example of the, the t-shirt. It's like, for me, I guess the bigger category is just outdoor clothing in general. Yeah. And if I look at the psychology of that, not to be an armchair psychologist, because I could throw a rock and hit what it is, I think.
0: It's easy. I'm, it's not a hard game to play. No, go game. ahead. <laughs> what are they trying to I tell mean, you?
1: Like I will be more adventurous if I, and it, recently it was also a pair of like hiking pants that had like, yep. you know, super movable material, stretchable, and you could, it could rain on them and it just, the rain just goes right off. And I, I look at that now and I go, I I want to be more adventurous is really the need that I'm trying to meet. And hilariously I'm you know, we've been in our which house. is a
0: a good desire, right? That is a <laughs> good, good, desi- good That's desire. but good. how do you get more adventurous, Aaron?
1: I mean, not by buying pants, by great right.
0: to- what What does it take? Yeah. yeah, yeah No, it goes back to what we were talking about before with the garden bed. Being more adventurous, the thing you want takes the uncomfortable yeah stretch
1: yeah. And and clicking add to cart is not an uncomfortable stretch. Exactly. Mm. Man, that's so good. That's so practical. I don't know that I'll ever walk in a Target again. And, uh, you know, I feel like that movie, there's this silly movie called They Live from the 80s where this is a sidebar, but I want to share it. There's a, a this uh these guys, these construction workers, the hero is a construction worker, and he finds a set of glasses that when you put them on, you see every ad is these uh, it's from an alien civilization that has like enslaved, <laughs> you know, the human beings. And it says like obey and like consume is all billboards say that, which is, you know, a gross oversimplification. But uh-huh. you, you've you pulled the veil uh, from my eyes in a way because it's a game.
0: It is. And it's a game to separate you from your money.
1: Ooh, that's obvious, but good too.
0: Another fun way to do this is to figure out how much work it takes you to earn a certain number of dollars. So like, like what does, what is 15 minutes in your earning? What is, you know, what is an hour? And I love to do this with uh, students because they're usually earning Fifteen dollars or less an hour, (laughs) because when you start to put the price tag of stuff into time, which is really exactly what it is, you exchange your work and your effort and body and you know time for money, and then you do that again, right? You change it. You can change your money for stuff. So work out how many. You know, something you want, right? So like those pair of hiking pants, how much did those hiking, those stretchy hiking pants cost?
1: Well, they were on sale, which was part of the lure. I think they were like $50 or something.
0: Okay. So what's 10% sales tax on top of that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Five bucks.
0: Yeah. So $55. What, um, because we live in Tennessee where sales tax is very high. Uh, What... I'm not going to ask you because that would be like a little more personal, but like what does, what does $15 an hour translate to how many hours do you have to work to earn those pants?
1: Like what? Four, four or five hours, something like that. Yeah.
0: And then picture yourself doing four or five hours of work. I walk students through this. It's really fun. Cause then they will be like, Oh, like so many customers were so mean to me at (sighs) Chick-fil-A.
1: The cost psychologically, physically, spiritually, for those pants becomes a whole lot more than the green.
0: Yeah. Man.
1: So what's the opposite of that? Maybe that's a good place to go is to talk about if, if we have uh, allowed ourselves to, uh, (laughs) I I don't want to be conspiracy theorist about it, but I mean, if we've, if we have entered a system that is designed to make us interested in consumption and trading, time which i as you eloquently pointed out i mean time is not just time it's all of the damage to our bodies brains spirits etc what would be do you have an idea of how how we might live in a different way not only with these practices but flipping that equation on its head
0: let's going for what is it that you really want and what do you know that gets you there so if you know that Corona doesn't get you great friends, but you want great friends. And great friends is a good want. That is a human social need, in fact. What do you know from experience, research, science, observation gets you great friends? And then do those things.
1: And I wonder, but by the way, you said Corona. We, we obviously don't mean the big C. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: But, but, uh,
0: Bud Light, but <laughs> Natty, whatever.
1: They're not sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> no. Um, but, but what's interesting is I wonder if in any of these situations, a common theme that's going to return is that some way the answer is going to be a little more uncomfortable than the homeostasis you find yourself in in that moment. Yep. And it's a lot easier to swipe a card, man.
0: Yep. And there's pain associated, right? You have, you you are putting yourself, you know, for example, if you want a great friend and you see someone that you think, wow, I'd like to be friends with that person, there's risk there, right? That's right. They might reject you. They might not want to be your friend. I've got a seven-year-old right now, and those are painful, those are painful experiences at every stage of life when you want to be friends with somebody who doesn't want to be friends with you.
1: You're making me think of my own. Yeah. No. Wow. Vulnerability.
0: It's hard, but the more you practice, we're anti-fragile with that too. And the more, (laughs) the more you get rejected, (laughs) (laughs) the easier rejection feels you realize you didn't die
1: incredibly empowering incredibly empowering well we could keep going on for hours and hours I think it would be a good time to maybe go to the lightning round yeah and uh so I've I've been exploring uh in my own life what a great day looks like what what and, and you know not what a great year looks like, not what a great month, not even necessarily what a great lifestyle looks like, because that's not really what I'm thinking about here. And so I want to pose the question to you when you look back for a lot of folks, it's the weekend because it's less pressure, but for not not for everybody. Do you have a, a vision for what the anatomy of a beautiful day looks like? and I mean in every day, I don't mean the day where you win the lottery and then go buy a bunch of stuff that really wouldn't correlate with what we're talking about anyway. Sure. But for you, what does that day look like?
0: How about I describe some real ones, some real great days. Yeah. So my favorite days, and I'll separate work from personal a little bit. Um, because gosh a great day with my son is a totally different experience than a great day at work um, a great day with my son is us making something together learning something together um, we go to the clay lady campus together on uh, for these kids clay days and Danielle the clay lady teaches us how to make a flower pot or a bunny or a cat sculpture out of clay and we uh, uh you know we sit together and we learn it and then we do it and we talk about what we're doing and i get to see his growth and him becoming a person um, who likes to be with me right now which is just the most fulfilling kind of day um nice. Just doing the little things that we like to do together, the places we like to go. Um, But making something with my son is always a great day. A great day at work is watching my students do things that they have been working on for a very long time. So... We have the Student Scholars Symposium at Lipscomb, which is a on-campus conference that students uh, present projects and um, research. And uh, their basically like their best ideas. They put them out there to the world, to the campus community and their friends and other professors and everything. And they, and I make them, <laughs> I make them do this. <laughs> and at the beginning of the semester, what I'm telling them about it, uh, they hate me. <laughs> they do not want to do this. It's the most uh, incredibly vulnerable academic experience of most of their lives to this point. Um, but I work with them all semester and we build and we do, pe- you know, build pieces and I give feedback and I, they build pieces and their peers in the classroom give feedback and it becomes this um, very supportive empowering environment and what they come out with is amazing. And then, and getting to watch them present that, um, you know, and they, you know, they dress professionally and they're, there's just like a, a white tablecloth dinner celebration at the end and everything and um, prizes for, uh, and, you know, watching them win prizes when they, they didn't want to <laughs> Put their ideas out into the world in the first place is uh, is really is really fulfilling because everybody feels that way, right? And and I try to explain to them too that you know that's what I feel. All right, I, when every time I publish a paper, it's like the exciting part is when it's published. The um, the terrible part is <laughs> is uh, putting my d- ideas out there for other people to to review and evaluate and deem acceptable or worthy or whatever. Um, but the satisfaction is so great. So getting to, getting to facilitate that experience with them and, uh, and see their satisfaction at the end is, is like always like, like that's one of my favorite days of my work year.
1: Again, you're, you're uh, facilitating the process that we've been talking about on what you you're you're facilitating folks be- becoming makers even if they're using their ideas to generate a, a, as a as a maker as opposed to a consumer simply a uh watcher a um you know they're not on the sidelines if they're doing that
0: right no right spectator that's the
1: word i was looking for yep so on a similar note, uh, life requires discomfort has been a big theme of this, especially a life that is that is moving more in a sustainable fashion and in more of a happy fashion, I would argue. And sometimes life requires work, not just work with what you go and do for a living, but work in all forms, work being that uh, arena of discomfort, whether it's Physical or mental, or you know, writing, the, all the writing that you've done and and the research. There is a, you know, the, people call it different things. It's you know the grind, uh, you know the 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 hustle. There's a lot of terms, and so I want to ask for you, with all the different ways society and culture describes work, in all its forms, there can be a camp that says. If you're on the right path, it's a joyful experience. You know, the classic quote, if you do what you love, you won't work a day in your life. And on the other hand, I hear a loud voice in culture that is like rise and grind, you know, get up and hustle and sleep three hours and, you know, maniacally leap towards your goals until you crush them. So where do you fit in that spectrum with your own philosophy of work? Is it pleasurable? Is it painful? Is it joyful?
0: Work is joyful. Work is life-giving. Work is satisfying. There are obviously parts of my responsibilities at work that are not those things, but they're really pretty small in terms of when I look at how much time I spend on them and how I think about them Uh makes a really big difference too. So if I just tell myself, for example, there's a lot of forms with my, my work that you have to file to it's it's like a due diligence thing for making sure that the rights, you know, that I'm documenting what, what has happened. Uh, And those are awful. (laughs) And if I tell myself, you know, I have to do, I'm going to do this. And so I get to do the really fun stuff in the classroom and with students. And that's just, that is part of the trade, but yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a super ambitious grind it out person. I think the, like, I think the work speaks for itself. And if people find it valuable, like I always want to be a contributor. I always want to contribute something positive that, that is helpful much more than it is harmful. So I'm not super worried about my name being attached to that or uh, even like super interested in recognition attached to that. Um, And a big part of that is that I like being a mom and I like being, um, you know, a lot of other things give me or life giving too. So I I certainly um, meet my responsibilities at work, but I'm also a ten month employee. So uh, how I fill those other, you know, and this the college schedule is a very mm. uh, cushy academic <laughs> schedule okay. for for work Um, and I appreciate that and I am I'm thankful for what that offers me in terms of being um, at home with my son really much more often than many people who uh, who have other types of jobs I don't think about that question a lot
1: though that's probably good. It's like a fish doesn't think about the ocean that they're swimming in probably. Yeah. So the final question, I, I want to tell a little story before I, I get there. Uh, there's story. I, I think as humans, uh, storytelling and advice. And I mean, stories are some of the best lessons of my life as a, as a young person. And there's a story from my childhood that my dad would tell me that I think correlates well with our conversation. And the story was my dad, uh, who had a challenging relationship with his own father to say at the least, uh, his father-in-law became a huge mentor to him when he married my mom and the two of them were in a rural, I mean, I grew up in a very rural situation. And so they were in this rural town, at a co-op. And they were shopping for boots. And, you know, they were surveying the options of boots. And my dad said, well, I I think I'm going to get these boots. He picked up a pair of boots. And my granddaddy said, those boots are the most expensive boots in the whole place. And dad looked at the price tag, and they were the cheapest boots. That's why he had picked them up. Because they were the cheapest, he says. What are you talking about? These are half of the price of these other boots, and he says, exactly. You're gonna have to replace those boots every year. He says, if you go get those boots over there, you're gonna have those for 20 years at least. So that story has stuck with me, and it's a, it's it really is a story of of quality make versus you know um, the opposite of that, and and so. That's a story, but it, it's a lesson and it's it's in many ways it's a piece of advice that I've been given so I always like to ask folks if they can remember I mean it can be a story like that or it could be a more explicit piece of advice it could be a lesson learned in a book, a movie, a musical it doesn't matter, but if is there a particular uh, kernel of wisdom that has been particularly meaningful for you in your life?
0: <clears throat> I had a fantastic mentor and f- uh, friend when I was a university student who was a professor, one of my professors, and I ended up working for him later, but he interacted with students and I watched him talk to lots of people and tell people lots of things advice and lots of things and lots of direction and compliments. And I watched him give a compliment to this 16 uh, year old kid at this, this uh, camp we were doing. And I thought, wow, that kid isn't, isn't that at all. <laughs> like, that's not true at all. <laughs> and I, uh, And then I was just like, huh, that's interesting. And I didn't ask him about it or anything, but later in some other conversation, he mentioned that he has learned to give compliments for people to grow into. And I've really kept that with me that, that he as someone who was in a position over young people and to be a mentor and to be a, um, to be an encouragement, uh, well, first off, we all know compliments go a really long way. That we all remember compliments that we've received. And uh, and while we might've forgotten them, people will rem- like, tell us back, tell back to us compliments that we've given them. Um, but this idea of giving compliments for people based on the potential that you see in them or based on something that doesn't exist yet, but could that those, that those young people could grow into. I thought was a, was a really beautiful form of mentorship. Um, and I, and actually until now I didn't think back to like, maybe I should have considered some of the compliments he had given me. <laughs> maybe those were things for me to grow into. <laughs> that didn't exist yet, but uh, but yeah I've tried to do that in my own life um, especially with my son and with the you know with the the students and the young people i've I've had the the pleasure of interacting with
1: We all have so much power and yeah. we all and that's been a huge theme of this conversation is how we are connected to the whole and the ways in which we can um, influence the whole in a conscious and awake way and the ways in which I'm just buying t-shirts on black Friday. And this has been a very impactful conversation for me. I love the, the blend of story practicality and fun that this has been. And, and I, I I think that's a great place to end with that uh, piece of advice because We're all (laughs) at different pieces of our journey. We're embryonic versions of what we'll become. And so if somebody's been inspired by this, if they are a uh, 17-year-old that's eventually going to be applying for colleges and they go, holy smokes, sustainability, that could be my thing. Um, Or maybe somebody that just loves some of your ideas. If if folks want to reach out to you what are the best ways that they can get in touch with you or if they're interested in the program?
0: So my professional email address is probably the best way. So that's E A S T U T Z M A N at Lipscomb, which is L I P S C O M B at dot E D U. So E A Stutzman at Lipscomb.edu. It's the best way to get in contact with me.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks so much for the time. Thank you all who are listening and uh, take care of yourself. Take care of every single element within your circle. And if there's anything I'm going to take away from this, it's to examine the power that I do have that I may not even be thinking about. So
0: you have way more power than you realize. Amen.
1: I hope that you enjoyed part two with Emily Stutzman. I love that part where we were talking about how when you are getting a really good deal, the company still makes money. This isn't a conspiracy theory, but it is. uh, I realize, and I think I even said it in this interview, it it can feel when you're getting a, a deal at REI or wherever, and you, you know, Oh, this is for a limited time only. It's, it's, it's 25% off. The company still makes money. The company is still winning that purchase. And I can perhaps be a little more mindful about when I do make those decisions. I will say that in my very real life, after listening to this episode, I chatted with my wife about this and about the gazillion t-shirts I have, flannels, things of that nature. And I decided to go into my closet and, and try on some things that I haven't worn that often lately as a way of really taking stock of, okay, what do I already have that I probably love that I kind of forgot about? If I'm trying to live with less stuff just for the sake of getting the stuff maybe I can ask myself if I'm a little happier with some of the things that I already have. And what I found very interesting about doing this is especially during the pandemic, I'm looking for ways to create novelty and beauty in the everyday. And so looking through my closet in a weird enough way was sort of like shopping because I went into the deep dregs of the closet, not the 10 t-shirts that I prefer the most or the you know, five dress shirts. I went for the more obscure items, and I think more than anything, I learned that I do really love a lot of things that I have that I kind of forgot about. So that was my own way of applying some of this last conversation, and I'm sure not, that's uh, not going to be the only way that I implement that. I also really uh, resonated with the notion of anti, anti-fragility, anti being anti-fragile. I really want to read more on that, but I think all of us can grasp the notion just from how she shared that and how it's just a, it's a beacon. It's a beacon. That's how I'm going to try to remember it, that the, if we go far enough through uh, some new experience that is something maybe we're not as comfortable in, the other side of that is joy because we will have stretched ourselves and we will have become more as a result of that. If you really resonated with things that Emily was saying or you are interested in her course or any other manner of things, you can reach her by emailing at eastutsman.com. That is E-A-S-T-U-T-Z-M-A-N at Lipscomb.edu. If you are appreciating this podcast, please, well, first off, thank you. Thanks so much for coming along with the journey. Please go to Apple iTunes and write a review. These are a huge, high-leverage thing you can do that takes about 60 seconds or less that helps raise awareness around this project and this mission. Please also share with someone if you particularly liked a piece of this and please subscribe. I will be back next week actually with a a new segment that is going to be focused on questions that I am reflecting on based on conversations in this podcast and also just things that I'm encountering in my life So that'll be back next Thursday. And in between now and then, I hope that you're well. Please take care of yourself. And I'll see you next week.